0: Welcome to Women in the Word. It is my great pleasure to be here with all of you women. In fact, you know, there are a few places that make me as happy as being right here with all of you studying God's Word. It is the happiest place on earth for me. You know, I've learned a valuable lesson studying Matthew. See, most of the time when I study the Bible, I like to take a little chunk and I like to pitch a tent and I want to camp there for a while. Because I like to look at every single word, every single phrase, and I want to dig as many spiritual truths out of that as I can. And I kind of thought that was the only way you could do it. But the study of Matthew has taught me that there's equally as much value as taking large portions of Scripture like we did this week and looking at each one of those sections within that portion and see how they tie together you know, doing this kind of reminded me of one of those, to- those huge topiary mazes. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I don't know if I would ever go in one. In fact, I know I would never go in one, because I've watched too many movies, and nothing good happens in those things. <laughs> but if I even imagined what it was like to be in one, I would imagine that every single step you took would be very, very important. I think that you would want to calculate where you're going, where you've been, all in light of getting to that very end point, getting out of there, because usually someone's chasing them, so I think they're probably going to do it quickly, but I think that's what it's like when we take take little portions of Scripture, each little word, each little phrase, very important as we pick them apart, getting to that end point, what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach me? Now. If you get to take a bird's eye view like we've been doing and you fly over, you get something like this. If we can get it, it's that. Now, guess what? You get to see all those steps tie together and how each step is going to take you to the very end. And that's what we've been doing in Matthew. We've been able to take each section and see how they grow on each other and what he's teaching us from one parable to the next and we learn even more if we take a moment and we look back at what we were just come from we came from in Matthew 12 remember last week Missy told us that um, that we were kind of at a, tor- a turning point in Jesus's ministry. remember that she said you know up until that point she said that the Pharisees and those evil leaders or those leaders, Jewish leaders, were saying things like, we don't believe what he's saying. He's from the devil. And and that's where he was coming from when this opens up. So I think when we get in Matthew 13, we saw a lot of spiritual truth, all the way from verse 1 to verse 58. Do you agree? It's packed, packed. But if we would have just taken one of those parables we would have missed out on so much more and knowing how the kingdom of heaven is established and and begins in each person's life and how how it grows and all the things that Jesus was teaching layer by layer. Now, we learned back there that the Pharisees were saying, we want to destroy this guy. And if you look on your verse sheet, the NIV is even clearer. Matthew 12, 14 says, But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they were done playing with Jesus. They were going to try to kill him. But guess what? Jesus is done with them too. And I think he was done first. He knew they had rejected him. And so he's going to start teaching in something called a parable. And that's what we have. Seven or eight, depending on who you talk to, in this one chapter, follow along. We're going to read that first one in Matthew 13, starting verse 1. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great cat crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. See, Matthew 13 starts out by saying that Jesus went out and he sat by the sea. Now, if we hadn't started like we did by looking back at 12, we might have thought, well, he was just taking a gander down by the sea and taking in some sights along the way just to go sit and have some t- time alone. But because Matthew 13 opens with that same day, it makes me believe that it's that same day that he was dealing with those knuckleheads that he was dealing with in Matthew 12. Because it says that same day he went and he sat by the sea. Now, I can't, I'm only guessing here, but I'm guessing that he needed a little time with the feet of his heavenly father. He was being rejected, he was being persecuted, he was being opposed at every turn, and I think he needed to spend some time at the feet of his heavenly father and be restored and be fed and be nourished by his heavenly father. And so he would build his confidence back up. You know, haven't you ever done that? Haven't you ever just been rocking along? You know, yeah, I'm right in God's will. And things are just going your way. And then, boo, you have a little speed bump. And then you hit to build a big pothole. And then you have a wall. And that wall becomes a mountain. And then it's just one opposition or one thing after another. And you start to think, wow, am I even in God's will? Well, see, I don't have an ocean to retreat to when that happens to me, but I can't count the number of times that I've taken the trek down the hall towards my bedroom, and the whole time I'm saying, okay, Jesus, I'm glad you live right here. Because if you didn't live right here, I would be so tempted to handle this situation in a way that was not going to honor and not going to glorify you. And I don't want to do that. And then I go in that bedroom, and I shut the door, and I just lay it all out there in front of him. And I come out of there stronger and more confident and restored because I've spent some time at the feet of my Heavenly Father. I personally think that that's exactly what Jesus needed. But now where this falls apart completely is how Jesus handles the next part. This parallel, I wouldn't handle this at all. Jesus' alone time is interrupted. And this crowd follows him. But what does he do? What does he do? He just accommodates the crowd. And he jumps into a boat, and he uses that as an opportunity to teach. That's not what I would have done. I'm sure I would have said, really? Really? Can't a girl get a little downtime? I mean, I've been in her 30 seconds. I did it every time my kids did it to me. But not Jesus. He jumped in the boat, and he went out, and he started to teach them. And this time... It was different. He was going to teach him with parables. Now, we're going to take just a minute here to talk about why he taught in parables. It's explained in the next few verses, 10 through 16, and a little bit further ahead, 34 and 35. For the sake of time, we're not going to read those today. But the word parable is made up of two Greek words. The one word is para, and the other is bala. And when used together, they mean to throw something alongside. So what he's saying here is that a parable is an illustration that throws out a truth alongside an unknown truth. And when they do that, it makes this comparison, which makes it easier for that unknown truth to be understood. And that's what he's doing. So a lot of these parables are the audience he's teaching to. Fishermen, farmers, different things like this. They're going to understand what he's talking about. And he gave three reasons why he spoke in parables. He said he could continue, he was going to continue to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And it was going to be through parables. Secondly, he spoke in parables because he wanted to hide them from those guys. He said, I'm not telling you anymore. I'm going to speak in a way that you're not going to be able to understand it anymore. And thirdly, he spoke in parables because it fulfills prophecy. Look at Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. He actually quotes this in, in Matthew on your verse sheet. He says, And go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And the next one on there is also a prophecy. And look at it, it's Psalm 78:2. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. That's what he was doing. See, Jesus preached the word of God, and many people heard him. And he performed miracles, and many people witnessed those miracles. And many of them truly did not perceive who he was or what he was. But the disciples, on the other hand, were privileged to see and hear those truths. Truths that the people of the Old Testament had longed to hear. They wanted to know these truths. Drop your eyes to Matthew 13, 16 through 17. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. I also put it on your verse sheet if you just want to look there. It says, but blessed are your eyes. He's talking to the disciples. For they see, and your ears they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. See, the disciples were hearing the exact same message that the Jewish leaders had heard, but their response was completely different. They saw, they heard, and they believed. And the Jewish leaders, they saw, they heard, and they rejected. And and because the disciples believed, Jesus says, I'm going to give you more. And the Jewish leaders, he says, I'm not giving you any more. Now, the parable of the sower is the first of these many parables we come in Matthew 13, but it's the only one that doesn't start with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. And that's because one could say it's, it's almost like it's how the kingdom of heaven begins. It's not how the, it all began, but how it begins for each person. How do you enter into the kingdom of heaven? It begins by the sowing of the seeds of God's word, God's truths. We find them right here in his word. And this parable is also one of the few that Jesus actually explains, which is a beautiful thing. He does it over in 18 through 23. Again, for sake of time, we're not gonna read that together today, but I hope that you did it when you were studying because that's where all the answers were. But don't you wish that all of Scripture had an explanation after the section? How wonderful would that be? I mean, the Bible, of course, we'd have to carry it in a wagon. Because it would be this big, this thick. And we'd all, of course, be the smartest people in the room. And we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit to, to give us wisdom and discernment. Again, I think I know exactly why Jesus didn't explain everything to us. But he does this parable. And he does one other, as a matter of fact. But I think he does this one because it's so important. Not that the rest of Scripture isn't. But this one's important. It's how we enter into the kingdom of heaven. He did not want us to mess this up. And this parable, like all the rest of these parables, I think they revealed a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever someone comes to me and says, okay, Benita, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news, I always answer the exactly same way, exact same way. I want the bad news first. And I do that because it's almost like when I hear the good news after the bad news, it's like you've scrubbed the bad news out of my ears. I don't think about it quite as much. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the bad news first in each one of these, and then the good news, so we can scrub some of that bad news out of our our ears. See, in the parable of the sower, the sower is Jesus' disciples, which, by the way, includes any of us that are followers of Christ. And the seed is the word of God. And And we, since we're disciples of Christ, are to sow the seeds of God's word liberally, Sow the gospel liberally, anywhere. Now the bet, but that's not all that God's Word, but not all of God's Word is going to fall on fertile soil. And that's part of the bad news. Some of what we sow is going to fall on hard soil. You know that packed down soil right next to the path? That hard soil represents the hardened hearts. They don't understand the truth at all. And because that Word just sits there and it's never taken in, then Satan will come along, the evil one, it calls it, will come and just snatch it right away. Some of that that we sow is going to fall on rocky soil. Now that, they understand it, and the roots, but they never really grow roots. These are shallow hearts that hear the Word, but because they never kind of grow strong or deep roots, they kind of quickly wither away, especially when they're faced with a little persecution or some rejection or some trials that come along. Thirdly, some of what we're going to sow falls among thorns. And, thorns are, and, and when it's planted there, the thorns are going to choke out that word. Now, these are the worldly hearts. They hear those truths. But what's been planted there, it just kind of gets squeezed in and choked out by all the worries of the world. By the worldly things. Jesus specifically says worries and wealth. It just, they are simply more worried about worldly things. And so the Word never grows there. Now, as discouraging as that may seem, I don't want you to be dismayed because remember, we're going to have good news after all of our bad news. And there is some good news because you know what? Some of those seeds of truth that you sow are going to fall on fertile soil. Some of them are going to fall on hearts that, that are prepared and they're fertile and they're ready to hear the Word. And those... Jesus says those seeds are going to produce a bountiful harvest. And I thought it was interesting. He goes on to say that there'll be a kind of a varied result with the harvest, hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Why say that? Well, he doesn't really explain why he says it, but to me, it almost makes me think you know, we're not supposed to compare our harvest with someone else's harvest. Did our sowing produce more of a harvest than someone else's? I don't think he wants us to do that. I think to him it's all bounty. Some just more bountiful than others. Now the difference in the results are not in the seed because the seed is the gospel. And it's truth. It doesn't change. That never changes. But the the difference is where that that seed is going to fall. The soil it's going to fall on. The The difference is in the individual's heart who hears the word. That leads us to two pieces of really good news I have to share with you. First, we don't have to wonder about what the truths are that we're going to share. Because that's what? God's already revealed them to us. And because His truth doesn't change, it's not going to be different tomorrow. It's the same truth. He reveals His truths that we're supposed to sow into the hearts of the lost. He doesn't just, and then He doesn't just say, go share with the lost. He gives us the words to share with the lost. This is what I need you to tell them. And lastly, another piece of good news. Jesus never said, sow my truth with everybody. And then I want you to go home and just worry and worry about whether you did a good enough job. (laughs) Is anybody going to hear it or understand it? I don't know if they're going to be saved. That's not your job. See, Jesus says, leave the results of the sowing to me. Leave them up to God. Let him deal with the results. Just do what you've been called to do. Now, also, for any math nerds out there, I don't want you to think that God's saying, or Jesus is saying that only a fourth are going to understand and receive the, become, that's only fertile soil. He's not saying that. What he's saying is a majority of who you tell the seed, or the truth to, they may not receive it. It may not be received positively by, by a majority of people. But you know what? We're supposed to keep on sowing it. That doesn't matter. The results don't matter. It's, it's that you continue to pour truth out into a lost world. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He quickly moved right into the next parable, and he re- it's recorded in Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds. Now, some translations call this the parable of the tares. It's exactly the same. This one does open up what the kingdom of heaven is like. Unless you're reading from the ESV like I am, it says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to which is the same thing. The last parable told one, how one enters into that kingdom. The next three parables are going to explain how the kingdom of heaven grows. So let's, um, let's read the next few verses. I'm going to start at 24 and read through 33. And there are three parables that we're going to discuss. He put another parable before them, parable before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to the master, Master, do you not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among with, uh, along with them. Let both grow together unto the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bide them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn." He puts another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. <clears throat> now... The parable 11 is the other parable that is explained. And that's over in 36 through 43. Again, we're going to skip reading that together for the sake of time. But in the parable of the weeds, Jesus is again using the illustrations of a sower sowing seeds. But this time the illustrations are a little different. The sower in this parable is Jesus. And the field in which he's sowing the seeds is the world. And, and the seed that... The seed that he's sowing out are the believers, the the disciples, us. He sends us out into the world to share the gospel to a lost world. And this parable, as well as the parable that we just read, and the parable of the leaven and the mustard seed, all come with good news and bad news. See, first the bad news, I think, is that there are weeds even listed here. Because those weeds are counterfeit Christians. And those counterfeit Christians are the one counterfeit followers, those are the ones that the evil one has sown alongside Jesus' true disciples. The fact that the parable has to include weeds sown tells me that when the evil one failed to stop the planting of the seed back in the sower, when he sowed it, he's not finished. He doesn't just stop there. He's going to look for another way to slow the gospel message down or to stop it completely. He finds another way to slow that growth of the kingdom of heaven. And his method of choice in the parable of the weeds is that when Jesus sows a true disciple that's going to share the gospel, he's going to sow a counterfeit disciple that's going to hopefully confuse that gospel. Now, to understand this parable a little bit better, we need to know exactly what type of weed was being sown here. See, the weed that Jesus is referring to here is called the Darnell weed. And it's used here in this illustration for a very good reason. Because at that time, the Darnell weed, it was very well, it was very well known, very common. In fact, it's very well known out through, throughout history, even today. And it's known because this weed is extremely toxic. Extremely toxic. In fact, if you consume just a little bit of it, it'll make you very, very sick. But if you consume a lot of it, it can kill you. It's, it's deadly. Now, the other interesting, th- interesting thing about Darnell weed is that the seeds look exactly like wheat seeds. In fact, they look so much alike that it's been called wheat's evil twin. See, this weed is so bad. I read one biologist said that when there is Darnell weed, there is treachery and toxicity. I know exactly why Jesus was using this. They knew about this weed. It grew in the wheat fields. And so even when these seeds begin to grow into immature plants, even at that point, the immature plant of the Darnell weed looks exactly like the wheat plant. So if they were going to try to weed, the, the, flat, the wheat fields at that point, they would have no way of knowing which was the wheat and which is the Darnell. It would be like sending my husband out in early spring to weed the flower bed. You don't do that because you will have no perennials left. <laughs> he thinks perennials are weeds, and he just pulls them all up. And that's what these looked exactly alike. And then as the plant begins to grow and they mature, now they start to look different. And it would be the time that you would want to separate them. Well, guess what? Now the Darnell weed has intertwined its roots with the wheat. And if you go trying to pull the Darnell weed up, you're going to pull up all the good wheat as well. See, that's why Jesus said they should leave the Darnell. Leave that for the harvest. Because at the harvest, the plants could be easily separated they could, they'd know what they look like, and they could separate and bundle that darnel. They could burn it, and it wouldn't cause any more problems with people or animals. And then they could take the wheat, and they could thrash it and winnow it, and they could put it in the barns for safety. Now, the way that we're going to be able to stand firm against the counter for Christians planted in our lives is we have to know God's Word. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because guess where we are today? We're doing exactly what he's told us we need to do. We're studying his word. We're getting it straight in our head. You know, this parable reminded me of an incident that happened back at TCU in uh, 1999. And it took place on the Eamon Carter Field, the Eamon Carter Stadium Field. And it's called the Battle. It was during the Battle of the Iron Skillet. Now, the Battle of the Iron Skillet is a yearly matchup between the TCU Horn Frogs, go frogs, and the SMU Mustangs over in Dallas. And legend has it that one year, 1999, while the band was on the field, they always end up in what's called the Diamond M, kind of like this, that they had carried rye seeds in their pockets. And when they got into the Diamond M, they carefully and very inconspicuously reached in and dropped the rye seeds onto the natural grass field of TCU's football field. And of course, the whole second half, the football players helped trample it in and get it planted really nicely down into the grass. Now, because ryegrass grows significantly faster and greener, it didn't take long for the horn frogs to know that they had been pranked by the SMM, SMU Mustangs. It looked like that. <laughs> you see the Diamond M? That's the ryegrass right there. Now, I'm in no way at all, saying that the SMU Mustangs are the evil ones, <laughs> or that the TCU horn Frogs are the true disciples. <laughs> We're going to leave that up to Jesus to judge. But I think you get what I'm trying to say here, don't you? See, like rye seed, rye grass, false Christians and false doctrine can so easily just be planted right around you. And it takes a little while. It takes a little while as it takes root and it starts to grow. But as it starts to grow and mature, it becomes a little more obvious that it's there. And the longer it grows, the more complicated it gets to get it out, out of your life. It gets messy and complicated. Look at your verse sheet at Second Peter 3.17 says, you, therefore, be, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. And then I look at Romans sixteen, seventeen, and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naïve. Jesus is giving his disciples, us included, fair warning. So we're being warned that we need to be alert. We need to know the scriptures like you're doing right now. And don't be naive. Test everything alongside the scriptures. This is important. It was important then. I think it's increasingly important now. I think the false teachers have become craftier and more subtle as as, as time has gone on. It's harder and harder, and you become the wrong one and the bad one because you've taken a, a, a stop. You've stopped to take a look at it and compare it to something. You've questioned it. But that's what we're called to do. We have to know and understand God's word. Now, we also learned in the explanation of the parable that the harvest, of, the, of this parable, that the harvest refers to the judgment that will come when Jesus returns. Just like the harvest, The farmers at that time knew it was best to leave the harvest up to the experts. And they knew that by that time, they would be able to cut it. They could separate the Darnell weed, the evil twin, and and burn it. And then they would take the others and they'd store it in the barn. And Jesus says that's exactly what's going to happen at the end of the age. He and his angels, he says, will, will separate the true disciples from the false disciples. And the false disciples will be burned in the fire. And the true disciples will be shining like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. It says says the fiery fiery furnace. It always reminds me, my daughter watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for for years. And she'd always try to say the part of the fiery furnace. And so whenever I read that in the scripture, I always want to read like, it's going to the fiery furnace. (laughs) I think that's how Jesus said it, but that's what makes me reminded of. You know, they all agreed in the mustard. We go into the next two parables. We have the mustard seed and we have the parable of the leaven. The mustard seed, um, they all have, these are not explained. There are so many different ideas and thoughts on these. But they all agree that the mustard seed is used to illustrate the growth of the kingdom of heaven. They agreed on that. Because the mustard seed grows very quickly. In fact, it will grow into this big tall plant, almost like a tree. And it does that in one season. So it grows very quickly. Now, I've had people say, but Vanita, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. Orchid seeds are smaller. I even had pictures shown to me. And and they're right, it is smaller. But remember, Jesus is using a known fact with his audience, alongside an unknown fact in this parable. And for these farmers, they didn't plant orchids. They had probably never even seen an orchid. But the smallest of the seeds these farmers were using were the mustard seeds. So for them, it was the smallest one that they knew and they had been using. And as I mentioned, it grows very quickly into this plant that has branches, actually, like a tree. So big, it says that the birds can nest in its branches. Now, most people agree that, that the mustard seed represents the rapid growth of the kingdom of heaven. That it would have a very small beginning and it would grow quickly into this big entity. But there are a couple different interpretations of the birds nesting in the in the branches of the mustard plant. Now, one of those interpretations happens to be kind of bad news. So, some believers or some believe that this illustrates the growth uh, that the growth that happens would leave it open for unbelievers to nest unbelievers, to, and that's where the birds come in. They, they say that they're the ones nesting in the branches. In essence, they're saying that the rapid growth of the kingdom of heaven would make it possible for sin to enter in, and, and like pride and power struggles to thrive within the kingdom of heaven. Now, the other interpretation of this actually is kind of good news. So we're going to hang on to that for just a minute and go go back to the last piece of bad news that we find in these parables, and that is in the parable of the leaven. See, there seems to be two camps here as well of interpretation of of this parable one good, one not so good. And um, again, no explanation. But the bad interpretation of it is that the parable of the leaven illustrates sin or evil. And those that believe that use the fact that in the Bible, for the most part, leaven, or also known as yeast, is usually represents sin. It frequently illustrates evil being added to something and how, in this case, they're saying it's false doctrine. That false doctrine can be added into the kingdom of heaven. Now, using that interpretation leads us with a bit of bad news. See, that is that once the kingdom begins to grow, false doctrine can be introduced by false teachers, and it will eventually permeate throughout the kingdom. So, like leaven, they're saying false doctrine has the ability or the potential to permeate and corrupt the gospel message. It's not very good news, but guess what? There is good news here. See, of first, all three of these parables illustrate the growth of the kingdom. And you know what that tells me? That once we sow God's gospel, God's word, the kingdom grows. See, I don't think Jesus would have had to even talk about growth if, if he didn't expect it to happen. And then, secondly, Jesus could have used any method to spread the gospel. But guess what? He chose his disciples. He chose us. What a brave idea. I mean, he, it's that bit of good news never ceases to amaze me. That he would let all of us participate in, in growing his kingdom. We get to be included in his master plan. And the third piece of good news here I found is in the parable of the mustard seed. Remember I told you the two main interpretations that, that there was one that was good? Well, this is it. Some say the birds represent abundance. Abundance. But they say say it doesn't represent evil. I don't know. There are two camps. They say the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus says is like a mustard seed, has the potential to grow quickly and abundantly. I think either one of those ideas have great spiritual truths to us. And since it's not explained, we can just take whichever one we want. You know, there's a second interpretation of the parable of the leaven, which is the last piece of good news in this section where the first one spoke of evil being introduced and how it would eventually permeate into the kingdom. See, the other interpretation uses the same quality of leaven, but it illustrates something good. See, leaven by its nature, when introduced to dough, any of you that bake bread or cinnamon rolls, I would love to know who you are. But (laughs) you know that when you put yeast into dough, it starts to grow. And there's no way you're going to stop it once it's in there. See, I think that's exactly what they're saying here. That he's saying that the, this interpretation uses Levin to say that this power, gospel is so powerful that when you share it, it's going to permeate and spread throughout the world. Nothing's going to stop it. You know, I want to continue reading. We're going to be the next few very short. Very short verses, but I think they're very important parables. There are three of them. We're going to start at verse 44, and I'm going to read all the way through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down, sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, as you notice, Jesus did not explain these parables, and oh boy, do I wish he had. Because there are probably a hundred different explanations of these <clears throat> and a hundred different ideas. But because of that, I had to kind of settle on one for each one of them. In the parable of the hidden treasure, the one that made the most sense to me is that the hidden treasure represents the nation of Israel, God's treasured possession. We see it referenced back in Exodus. Look at Exodus 19.5 on your verse sheet. This is when Moses is on Mount Sinai, and God tells him, take this message to the Israelites. He tells them, he says, Therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. See, God is calling the nation of Israel his treasured possession, and Jesus refers to them in these parables as his treasure as well. And the man who sold everything in this idea, this thought, on this parable, is that is Jesus, the son of man. Because, and one reason he came to the world was to redeem Israel. But another reason was to redeem us as well. And what exactly did Jesus give up to purchase the Jews and all of us? Look at 2 Corinthians 8 9 on your verse sheet. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He became poor for us. And the Philippians 2, 5-8 reveals even more of what he gave up. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to grasp. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that, 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 far, that, person that, that man that came to buy that treasure was Jesus, and he paid the highest price. He paid with the death on a cross. And in the peril of the pearl, again, no explanation. But I think the interpretation that makes the most sense here is that the pearl is the church. Now, some say that the pearl is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know. I don't know because he doesn't tell us. They both, But they both agree on this. They agree that on those two interpretations, they both agree that the merchant who sold, who sold everything to buy that highly valued pearl, whether it's the church or their kingdom of heaven, is Jesus. And we just saw he paid the highest price to redeem those who would believe and reestablish his church or his kingdom. Now, in the parable of the net, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a large net. It's commonly called a dragnet. In fact, there are some translations that call it the, tr- the parable of the dragnet. But um, the dragnet, a dragnet is a large, large fishing net and it would be dra- they would drag it in the water and it would bring in all these fish and they could pull it into the boat and then they would haul it up onto the shore and they would separate the fish. And they would throw the good ones into baskets and they would put the others, they would just throw the other fish away, the bad fish. See, Jesus explained that that's what's going to happen when Christ returns to establish his-, his kingdom. Now the bad news in these sets of parables is that there will come a time when everyone will be Judged. They're going to be judged. God is going to separate the true believers from the unbelievers. And that's not actually bad news unless you're unbelievers. And there are a couple of pieces of good news here as well. First, although Israel may be God's treasured possession, Jesus came to to redeem both the Jews and the Gentiles. And you know why that's good news? Because we're Gentiles. Gentiles. That's great news for us. The second piece of good news is that the church established with his death that the church that or the kingdom of heaven, whichever it is you want to say, that Jesus established with his death and resurrection is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. He includes both. Look at Romans 1:16 on your verse sheet. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he addresses this very thing. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, do you see what I mean? What that there is such great value in doing a flyover like we did? We got a bird's eye view of all of these parables. Yeah, we had to run through them pretty quickly. But we were able to see all these truths that Jesus tied together. And he, he was teaching them so many different layers of what the kingdom of heaven is like. See, they all knew, the disciples all knew that there would be a Messiah who was coming. They'd heard about this all their lives. They knew that this Messiah was going to come and establish his kingdom and he was going to rule over it. But they had no idea that Messiah was going to be rejected by their very, his very own people. You know, they knew that the kingdom would include the righteous. They got that. But I bet they had no idea that there would be evil that would try to weasel its way into the kingdom of heaven. They knew that the kingdom, that they, they didn't know this. God put, Jesus pointed out to them a, a completely new truth. One that I think they learned by knowing that this, this period of rejection that he was in, between that and his second coming, they would be professing followers that were not true disciples. I don't think they understood that. I don't think they knew that there were going to be counterfeit followers as well. And Jesus shared with them an idea that the era of the church would start very small. The kingdom of heaven would start very small, and it would grow into this great kingdom. And once that started, it would would not be able to be stopped. It would continue to grow. And he taught them that at the end of the age, there would be a time of judgment in which Jesus and his angels would separate the true believers from the unbelievers. Now, there's one final, very small, but I think very important parable. In fact, it's so small that some commentaries don't even list it as a parable. But I don't agree. I think it should be. It starts in 51, and it's just two verses. And then after that, Matthew records that Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth. Follow along, and I'm going to read from verse 51 to uh, the end of Matthew 13. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Can you believe they said that? (laughs) I'm going to be going. I I bet they all went, yeah, because everybody else was going to say yes. They weren't going to be the one to say no. So they all said yes together. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is, it not, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. <clears throat> That's such a sad portion of scripture to me. You know, Jesus finishes his teachings and he asks his disciples, do you understand everything? And of course they said yes, which I don't agree with at all. There's no way they could have understood. Then he uses this parable to explain to his disciples that they're not only his followers, they're his scribes. They're scribes as well. Now, when he talks about a scribe, they would have understood this because the scribe that Jesus is describing here. Are, are ones that had started way back under the, in the Old Testament under the leadership of Ezra. And their purpose was to study, preserve, and apply God's truths. And that's what he's telling them. He's telling them that you're going to be my disciples. You're going to have to be scribes first. You're going to have to sit at my feet and learn. And, and you're going to take what I've taught you in the old, and you're going to apply it to the new, and it's going to all come. You need to know all of this how it works together. And then he says, then you can be my disciple. And when you do that, you're following me and you live out those truths that you're going to learn at my feet all in your daily life. And then you're going to share those truths with others. You know, in the last few verses of Matthew, and for that matter, throughout Matthew 13, we're reminded that there's bad news and good news about being a disciple. And I think part of the bad news is, is as disciples of Christ, we are going to face opposition persecution, and rejection. Now, well, that's a little hard to take. Not everybody's going to like what you tell them. But it always helps me to know ahead of time if there's going to be a problem, right? Don't you know? Isn't it that way for you? If you know, hey, you're, this is going to be probably going to happen, and you just set your mind on If it happens, then you don't have to be unexpected. It doesn't side, blindside you. He says you're going to have problems. Look at, look at 1633, John 1633 in your verse sheet. He gives us that, and then he gives us good news. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you, might have, you may have peace. See, in the world you will have tribulation. But ha- take heart. I've overcome the world. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have problems. But I've overcome this world. You know, just like Mama said, Jesus says you're going to have days like this. Aren't you? You're going to have days of rejection, persecution. You're going to hit one brick wall after another. But we get to pay, face it with peace, with, with Jesus' peace that he gives us. You know, we can face this because we have some good news. We have three pieces of good news, I think. First, we're called to share the gospel with everyone we meet and leave the results up to God. You know, everybody I know is trying to figure out what their purpose is in life. Guess what? If you're a follower of Christ, you can quit looking. You've already got your purpose. Your purpose is to share the gospel. So get down to the business of sharing God's gospel with everyone you meet. And the second part of that good news is, guess what? You don't have to fret about it. You don't have to fret if it lands on rocky hearts or or hardened hearts or fur hearts. Why well, you don't have to wring your hands? He says, "Sow my word with everyone you meet along your path, in, on, and around your path. Just sow my words and leave the results up to me. I'll take care of it." How many deals in life do you get like that? That's amazing to me. Secondly, we see good news in the fact that. We know we're going to be confronted with false teachers and false doctrine. That's not such great news, but we know ahead of time to watch for it. And God gives us his word so we can stand firm. Not just any old word, his very own words. So that we can withstand and stand firm against these false teachers. And we can and keep pouring truth where they're pouring faults. We don't have to rely on our own words or our own wisdom. Thank goodness for that. Am I right? And the last piece of good news isn't just good news. Ladies, this is the good news. See, because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can be declared righteous and spend eternity with him. See, if you're in Christ, you can be sure that at that final harvest he was talking about, where the unbelievers are separated from the true believers, you're going to be standing in the group of true believers. And you're going to be declared righteous before your Father in heaven. And you're going to shine like the sun for eternity. That is the best news ever. Please pray with me. Father, we are humbled and honored and quite frankly astonished that you would choose to use us to share your word. Father, I pray that we rise to that occasion, Lord, that we know our purpose, and we live out our purpose in everything we do, and that's to share your gospel with everyone in and around our path, Father. And I pray that we would allow you to just work with what we sow, and we would just rejoice with you as we see the harvest be bountiful. We love you. We love your word, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.